Scotland. <laughs> I just thought I'd put that in there to begin with. Okay, so I'm going to start at the very beginning. Very good place to start. I'm going to read uh, John chapter 11, which is uh, what we're going to look at today, the chapter we're looking at today. Okay. Hopefully. Um. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went to call her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept.
So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, and his hand and feet were bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. Right, so this is another long chapter, um, but it's also a little bit of an odd one, um, because it's got quite a lot of the other themes that we've been talking about in the last few weeks. It's uh, like the fact that Jesus says that illness and even death can be used for his glory. So they are nothing to be ashamed of. There's also a bit about God's timing, and we're going to look, about, uh, look at that a little bit more later on. But it also contains a completely original story. This story doesn't turn up in any of the other Gospels. And it does stir up a lot of questions. I was talking to a friend of mine about it the other day, and she was saying that she finds it hard to accept this story um, because Jesus delays going to be with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And we don't normally see Jesus do that, actually. You know, he usually sees to people's needs straight away, and he stops for anyone who asks. Um, it's one of the things that makes him really lovely. It shows that he cares. But that doesn't happen in this story. So what does that mean? Why does he wait? Why does he delay? 
Now, firstly, I'd like to say that Jesus wasn't offhand about not going. It wasn't that he couldn't be bothered. It wasn't that he wasn't bothered by the news. He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There's a promise there. He is saying that Lazarus will live. And he's saying that this illness will be used for God's glory, which is pretty special too. We have to make sure when we're reading the Gospels that we don't get used to the fact that Jesus was doing absolutely amazing, mind-blowing things. You know, It was all pretty amazing. What he says here is a very positive statement. And another thing to remember is that Jesus' disciples, they're surprised that he would, he would even consider going to Bethany, which was so close to Jerusalem, where he had almost been stoned just you know, not very long ago. So the decision to go took courage. It wasn't an easy decision. And I'm also pretty sure that Jesus wasn't just killing time, like watching TV and chilling out for two days. He was probably doing what he does throughout the Gospels, you know, teaching people, probably healing people, and praying. But the question remains, why did he wait? Why did he delay? And I think that Jesus answers that question in part in verse 9, when he says to the disciples who are questioning his trip to Bethany, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the daylight, he will not stumble because he can see by the world's light. But if anyone walks at night, he stumbles because there is no light to help him see. Jesus is talking about the working day, the twelve hours of daylight when you could see enough to be able to work. He is saying that when it is light enough to see, then it is time for work. And as Jesus has already called himself the light of the world, he is saying that while he is there, then they need to be doing God's work. And that there is time enough for what he needs to do. With Jesus' life, everything is about timing. As we've seen before, Jesus keeps in step with God's plans. Which is why later on, when the timing is right, he walks straight into the eye of the storm, right into Jerusalem, even though he knows he's going to be killed. It's also the reason why he doesn't reveal who he is. He doesn't defend himself to people. He doesn't, he doesn't say, no, I am the right person. He doesn't defend himself when he doesn't need to. He doesn't reveal who he is early on in his ministry because he knows that he still had so much to do and that he knows that when people realize who he is, then actually it's going to bring on his death. And it's the same reason, timing, that makes him delay going to Lazarus. He waits until God shows him that it is the right time. And now if Jesus is ready to give himself and his life up to God's plans and God's timing, then in a way we probably shouldn't be surprised that he expects others, that he expects us to do the same. But I think that we can all sympathize very easily with Martha and Mary in this story. When they both challenge Jesus and they say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's a bit of an accusation there. Why weren't you here? Why didn't you do something? Now, when something doesn't go how we think it should, we can be quite quick to challenge God. And I say, good. He can take it. And in, and in fact, I think it's the times when we hold him to account and when we're really honest with him that we really start to learn more about him. 
And he didn't want us, he didn't make us to be deaf, dumb, blind drones who follow him because it's what we're supposed to do. He made us to be his children and his heirs. He made us in his image and he wants to help us to grow to be like him, not just to pretend to be like him. But what all this reminded me of was that first accusation against God in the Garden of Eden. When Satan asks Eve if God really told her not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then he says, God knows that if you eat the fruit from that tree, you will learn about good and evil. Then you will be like God. He's planting a thought in her mind. God doesn't really love you. He doesn't want what's best for you. If he did, he'd give you exactly what you want. When God doesn't give us what we want, when things don't go the way we think they should, how often do we start to doubt that he is good? Whether he really loves us after all. But he does. I've had the privilege of praying with quite a lot of people, and sometimes when I've prayed for people, I have felt a bit of the love that God has for that person. And it is just out of this world. And it doesn't matter who they are, and it doesn't matter what they've done, and it doesn't matter what's going on in their lives. He loves them. He just loves them in a way that they've always dreamt about being loved. I think that it is really, really important to challenge God, to hold him to account. You know, the Bible is full of it. Half the Psalms are about people shouting at God, saying, come on, come and change things, set things right. But when we do this, we've got to remember a few things. We have to remember that when God made the world, he did make it to be perfect. He didn't want it to be like this. He didn't want it to be this hard. He wanted us to have everything. He gave us everything we needed. He walked with us like a friend. It was us that messed it up. We thought we knew better. We still often do. And we we complicated life and we lost the simplicity of a life lived in relationship with and dependent on God. And he's as disappointed about the whole thing as we are. And another thing to remember is that when we challenge him, we have to be prepared to listen to his reply. It doesn't help anyone to moan about what we thought it was supposed to be like unless we hand over that burden to him. And it's of no use comparing what God is doing in other people's lives to what he is doing in our lives. Did you notice in this passage, the people say, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Comparisons. None of this is helpful unless we hand it over to God and see what he will do with it and see what he will say about it. Jesus is way ahead of us. The wisdom of men is really pathetic compared to the wisdom of God. He does know best. But he also wants us to take us he also wants to take us along on the journey with him. He includes us in his plans and he wants to share with us his intentions. 
I believe that Martha shows us how to do this really well in this chapter. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. She's being honest about how she feels and about her disappointment, but then she gives Jesus the floor and she lets him speak and act. And Jesus then, he lets her in on his plans. He helps her to grow in understanding. Jesus said, your brother will rise and live again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise and live again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will have life even if he dies. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? This is pretty deep stuff. And you can see from Martha's answers about the last day that she thought at first that he was talking about, you know, the resurrection in the last day, in the end. When this world has come to an end, there's a new heaven and a new earth and we, all go, to be, we go back to being with God. She knows it's all going to be okay in the end. But that's not always that comforting in the here and now, right here, right now. What Jesus is saying, though, is that the resurrection is right here. It is right now. He is the life, and death can't stand up to him. And then he demonstrates it. He just raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, I hadn't noticed before, but there's no comment on the reaction of the family or Lazarus or Jesus after this happens. But can you imagine? I tried to put myself in their position. And I was thinking about how electric it must have been to have heard Jesus praying directly to God like that. You know, it says elsewhere in the Bible, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and it's working. Can you imagine that prayer, hearing that prayer from Jesus. It, was, it must have been on fire. And then Lazarus walks out of the tomb, burial clothes and all. Boom. I said to Matt, I wonder if people will understand if I say, mic drop. It's this phrase, like Jesus like, walk out, set him free. And everyone's like, woo. I just, if you put yourself in that position, it just blows your mind. And imagine the hugging and the happy tears and the euphoria of that moment and all the grief of the last few days forgotten in an instant. Now this got me thinking about how some things in life are worth dying for, worth waiting for. Jesus obviously felt we were worth dying for. And I wonder whether this family felt that what they received in joy after Lazarus was returned to them was worth all the pain beforehand. We've probably all faced situations where we have suffered, where we have been waiting for a miracle, and it doesn't seem to have come. But I'm reminded of Psalm 30, verse 5, which says, There may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. We may have an awful lot of trouble in this life, but the promise of a new morning where everything is set right, that's got to mean something, even in the midst of our troubles. And I think that when we are on the other side, we won't spare a thought for what we've gone through here. We'll be so wrapped up in the beauty of it. 
But I think that there's even more available to us than just to hope for a future, as helpful and lovely as that is. I think that there is new life for us right here, right now. I think that often the things worth dying for are also worth living for. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We don't have to wait to start this journey. Now I know of course that people don't get routinely resurrected from the dead around here. But I do know that there'll be some people in this room who have met people who have been raised from the dead. I have. Um, But what Jesus said is still true for all of us. He is the resurrection and the life. And the new life that we have in him starts now. Death doesn't stop it. Life is not just our time on this earth. True life is returning to who we were always meant to be. It starts when we come to know Jesus and it will never end. It only grows. Come what may, troubles, suffering, death, we won't be defeated or knocked off course. We just continue on with him. And that is true life. One thing I really don't want to do, though, is to downplay grief. You know, people should never be ashamed of grieving, of sadness. Jesus didn't make light of it. Isn't it surprising that even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still cries when he sees the grief of of the family. And it's because he cares. And he knows what we are. He knows what we're like. And it made me think, and I hope this isn't a patronizing uh, comparison, but it did make me think about when David gets upset about something. And he, he gets upset about things, and I know full well that it's going to be fine. But he really is upset about it. His sadness is real. And, you know, when I'm, I hope that I feel that sadness with him. that I understand that he doesn't see the full picture, so that I am sad for him and I comfort him. And I think that Jesus is like that here, and God is like that with us. He is sad for our sadness. Remember, he never wanted any of this rubbish for us. He gave us Eden. But even though we messed it up, he is now working through the pain, through the sadness, through death itself, to bring us back to that life that he always wanted us to live. And that brings us back to God's plan and the idea of right timing. So why was it so important that Jesus waited for two days to go to Bethany? Well, some people think that even if Jesus had set off straight away, then Lazarus would still have been dead by the time he got there. I haven't worked it out, but they say that it would have taken him that long to get there. And some people say that there was this superstition that um, the spirit of a person hung around the body for three days and it was only on the fourth day that they were gone for good. Be that as it may, basically I think that Jesus wanted to make sure that it was completely clear that Lazarus was dead and then he was alive. It was a pretty clear sign that he was the Messiah and pointed forward to his own death and his resurrection. Now, this miracle is what seals Jesus' fate. It is like a battering ram against the door of the religious leaders of the time. 
you might have noticed that they don't disbelieve this miracle. There's no denying it. They know that people are going to have to accept him now. And that is why they want to get rid of him. He will tip the balance of power. If people believe he is who he says he is, then they're not going to be afraid of the Romans anymore. And that could cause unrest and possible power struggle with the Romans. And the chief priests don't want that because they are too comfortable where they are. They've got a good thing going on. While they keep the Romans happy, they can lord it over the normal people. So their reason for wanting to stop Jesus is political. It's completely selfish. They have put aside any pretense that this is about true religion versus blasphemy. But though they think they are the ones who are shaping the future, they are just a part of God's plan. The chief priests unknowingly prophesize in verse 50. You don't realize that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Now, you don't realize that he will die for the nation, but he will die for the whole world. And not for the convenience of the religious leaders so that they can keep things and keep the status quo. He died so that life and death would never be the same again and so that we can go back to life as it was always meant to be. Thank you. Right, I'll finish with a prayer. God, your plans are out of this world and the things that you do are just amazing. But sometimes we get used to it or sometimes we think, oh, no, that can't be true. But God, I, I thank you that it is. I thank you that people have lived and died by this, <laughs> knowing that you're coming, you're coming back, knowing that we go to you. And I thank you that life is now, that this new life is for us now, that you understand how, how hard life is, that you know what we're like, but that you're here for us and that you want to give us that life that you always meant for us. And just, Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to accept it. Amen.